there are other people who are really fairly new at this idea of alternative investments. And so the questions that they ask are, why is real estate a thing that people get into? And why is that better or different or have advantages over the stock market? Are you ready to transform your life? This is a no-nonsense show helping immigrants like you create generational wealth, even while working full-time. Get ready to take notes. Here's your host, Socket Jane. My great to us listeners, if you want to manage real estate, maybe you're ready for a lifestyle change. By selling your real estate, of course, you may have to pay substantial cap and gain taxes. One option that may help solve this is to learn about doing a 1031 tax deferred real estate exchange. Because you may be able to defer all of the capital gain taxes, and you could even exchange into a replacement property that may allow you to get rid of all of the headaches involved with being an active landlord. Ray DeWitt is a managing director with Bantanger Financial Services, and his goal is to help you understand all the rules associated with the 1031 exchanges. To learn more, visit their website at bantangerfinancial.com and browse the library of education material. Please be sure to see the disclosures and show notes. My great to wealth listeners, today I have the pleasure to talk to Paul Thompson from One Call Capital. Paul, how are you, buddy? I'm fantastic. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Me too, man. Me too. We've already gotten the kids out of the way and how they're all becoming teenagers in their attitude. So that's good. Now we can talk the real stuff. Paul, thank you again for taking the time, man. I think one of the things that we always start, Paul, is instead of going into the intro, your intro is going to be self-discovered on the podcast, really more around your story, right? Kind of like, how did you get into what you do right now? But before we do that, when you heard the term migrate to wealth first, what was the first thought that came into your head, if you recall? Good question. The first thought was, that's a really cool name. I wish I'd come up with it myself. Good job on the marketing front. And building wealth, I think, is something that can be associated in the U.S. with a very negative connotation. And there are certainly people who take it that way, who are justified in believing that. But I think it's also incumbent on all of us to provide for ourselves and our families. And nobody else is going to do it for you. And it's a requirement for you to learn the skills it takes to be a resourceful person. And that results in being wealthy. I agree. Now, Paul, let's talk about what does wealth mean for you, right? Is it all money? Is it something else? What does wealth mean to you today? Wealth is just another kind of proxy for abundance. And it's abundance of a scarce resource. And so for me, the scarce resources are cash, capital, are time, and freedom. When you have access to all three of those, then you have a wealth and abundance of choices. And the whole reason that we build financial wealth is to give ourselves the choices to allocate our time and energy the way we want. On a scale of one to 10, how are you in terms of abundance of time? Probably eight out of 10. Yeah. That's amazing, Um, man. That is amazing. Yeah. That's a priority for me. And maybe that will come out a bit in my story. I probably could be much more financially wealthy, but I've chosen a, a time and personal freedom wealth as a priority over and above masses amounts of liquid cash. Let's talk about that. What drove you towards that? Help us spend a picture of what aspect in your life, what happened in your life that made you make that decision? Yeah. There was a very distinct wake up call moment for me when I realized that I was a wage slave and I was exchanging my time for money. I was working corporate America. I was on a beach vacation and we had a nice one week vacation Uh and we had so much fun that we decided that we wanted to extend our vacation another week. 
Um, my wife was a stay-at-home mom, and my kids were both out of school at the time for summer break, and I had a day job. And I was an engineer, and I worked in the company that made the internet possible. So mm. the idea of, I worked for an internet service provider. We understood the technology of video conferencing and conference calls. I mean, this was 2015, so it was prior to the pandemic. But this was still, Zoom was still a thing then, right? And many of the calls that I had, practically all of the calls I had were all conference calls anyway. So I asked my boss if I could extend my vacation, but I would still work my normal shift, but I would just stay at the beach because we're having a good time. I have many years of service. And he just so matter of factly was like, why are you bothering me with that? Like, we don't do that here. Get your ass back to work Monday. I expect you to be here at eight o'clock. Wow. Yeah. It wasn't even a conversation. It wasn't like, what's going on? Like what? It was just like, no. You'll be yeah. here at eight or otherwise you're not employed here anymore was the attitude. He didn't say that in so many terms, but he said, I expect you to be here on Monday at eight o'clock and just basically hung up on me. And I was like, I'm like well, that was quite a jerk th- response, but it was the wake up call that I needed that said, okay, I see exactly where I stand and I'm in a position where this job is far more important to me than I am to them. And I was trapped in this mindset of exchanging time for money right. and Uh, Warren Buffett has a famous quote that he says something to the extent of you'll never retire until you make money while you sleep. And said another way is you must own something that pays you separate from your time allocation of it. So basically you want to own equity. You want to earn income, save some of it, invest some of it in stocks. You want to buy real estate. You want to start your own company. You want to buy, build, or create equity in your life. Otherwise you will always be trapped in the rat race and always having to work for your income. Correct, correct. And I completely agree with that, Paul. Let's go back to your story really quick. So what did you do? Did you go back there at 8 Good o'clock? Good question. I went back. I mean, I took my tail between my legs and white-knuckled my way back 10 hours to Arkansas from the beach, decided, okay, well, thank you. That was exactly the wake-up call that I needed to tell me you're a wage slave and it's time for you to start create your own personal economy. And so I looked for a lot of options. I considered buying franchise. I considered starting an insurance agency. And I landed on starting buying single family rentals in my backyard in Little Rock, Arkansas, which is where I happened to live at the time. So I think you had that epiphany. You're essentially trading your time for money. Even that you have no control on. Somebody else controls how much of the time they need and when they need it, where they need it, with who they need it. Yeah. So you had that. Now, what framework did you use to figure out you're going to look for opportunities? Did you have mentors? Did you have people who were already doing it? Were you just kind of looking online? How Mm. were you going about it? And how were you saying, no, this is not working for, this is not it. I need to keep looking. Or here's a list of top three things that I'm going to look at franchise business, whatever it could be. Mm -hmm. What was your framework for that? Good question. I didn't really have one because I didn't have any training in that. So I was groping around the darkness looking for some beacon of hope. And I kept feeling like all these opportunities that I was evaluating would be just me buying myself another job. And I really didn't want to start a business that was going to own me. And I didn't have any experience being a business owner at all. I was an employee thick and through. So that's why I decided, well, you know what? I'll just buy a rental property and I can do that on the side. I can do that during my off hours Mm -hmm. and lunch hour, that kind of thing. And just see if that makes sense. It was like, I just want to run a quick experiment yeah, and see if what I'm reading online about this whole rental property thing, what I learned on Bigger Pockets, actually worked, and it did. And 
The first deal I did was a burr. I bought the property and I refied it. I had a renter in there and thought, okay, well, the proof of concept is there. I see mm-hmm. this working. The market was right for it at the time. So I just went on a buying spree as much as I could manage. I bought, I think I bought like 18 houses in like the first 18 months. Wow. One uh, house a month. Amazing. Yeah. Averaged one house a month. Yeah, it came in fits and starts, but if you were to round it all together, it was about one a month. Got it. So let's think let's think to that for one more second, right? So you were looking for a solution. When you found the real estate, was it kind of like your last hope at that point that everything else is not going to work out? What was going through in your head? Actually, take us back in that if you can, because from not knowing what to do to buying huh. 18 homes in 18 months, that's a drastic shift, right? You didn't say, let me try it for six months. Let me buy one, wait for six months. Let me see how things are going. Maybe wait a year, which is what traditionally somebody who has never done anything would do. But you went all in right. and you went all in very <laughs> quick and very I fast. Yeah. So what yeah. was going through your head? What did you find in that thing where you felt so compelled to keep going? A couple of things. So the reason I went all in on real estate when I discovered that I really wanted to change my lifestyle and to buy my time. I was so frustrated with my work situation. I was so dissatisfied with the way I was being treated at work. And I just really did have this kind of epiphany moment. It's like, I've got to make up for lost time, but I didn't want to be foolish either. Right. So I wanted to be uh, prudent with my investments, but I needed to go make it happen. If it is to be, it is up to me. It's kind of the thing that kept going through my mind. Mm -hmm. And because Obviously, my company that I worked for didn't care about me. I didn't want to sit around and wait for some sort of government handout. Like I had to go make it happen. And yeah. fortunately, I live in the 21st century and I'm born in the US and I'm a native English speaker and I'm reasonably intelligent. I was just lucky that I was in an environment that was primed for opportunities. Yeah. And it was my own fault for not doing anything about it. And it was like, I wish I had started earlier, but though Chinese proverb, when's the best time to plant a tree, right? 20 yeah. years ago, but I didn't. So today's the next day, right. next best day. So I just made it a point to learn what I didn't know. And you asked about a mentor a few minutes ago, and I got some really good advice from somebody who was saying like, you know, go find somebody who's done it and ask yeah. them for some help. And so what I did is I sent an email to a guy that I found on the internet He was about an hour outside of my city. So he wasn't really competition, but he was in my state. Mm -hmm. And I sent him an email. Here's my situation. I'm looking for mentorship. I'm happy to exchange time to help you in your business in exchange for learning about your business. I'm not looking to compete with you. I'm just looking to help you somehow. He called me back about two weeks later and he said, I appreciate your email. I get this kind of request occasionally. And here's what I always say. I say, go buy the book, The Richest Man in Babylon, read it write me a three-page handwritten essay and mail the book that's been marked up and the essay to my P.O. box. And once you do that, I'll know you're serious. Sounds like some Mr. Miyagi stuff going on. Yeah, I know. Wax off. That's amazing. <laughs> that is amazing. I've never heard of that before. Yeah. That's great. Me either. I mean, I love the book, but I just have never heard of anyone going to that degree of barrier to entry, man. That's amazing. Right. Right. And so he didn't charge for any of this. He just like, this is what I do. Later on, after I had written five or six, seven essays for him on five or six, seven different books, he said, I've done this for years and there's only ever been two people who have done more than one essay for me because most people get tired of handwriting essays and they just move on. I remember asking him, I was like, well, I've done three now. Do you mind if I just type one out? He's no, no, no. I want you to handwrite every single one of them. (laughs) What was his reasoning? 
for handwriting? It's painful. He's a little bit older school and he thought, I want you to experience what it was like to do the business back before there was technology. Mm. Um, and there's something, there is scientific evidence that suggests that when you handwrite something, yeah. you resonate with it deeper. It makes you slow down. And you're not having like a computer always correcting your grammar as you go, but you can kind of yeah. get out of those interrupts and you can just write. And I remember writing one of the papers. I can't remember what book it was on, but I remember writing and I just detected that the way I was writing it and what I was saying in it was there was some ego coming out. Like I'm mm. an accomplished guy. I have a master's degree. You know, I make a hundred thousand dollars plus a year in yeah. this fortune 500 company. And I just kind of detected a little bit of that ego coming out. And I had to like kind of scratch what I was writing and think, you know what? You're starting over. Like what you, you did in the corporate world doesn't matter. Like right. renters don't care about that. Other people don't care about that. That's just your ego getting in the way. And you're not all that. And you need to go take a piece of humble pie and go learn this stuff from the ground up. And one of the suggestions that he made for me was to go into these conferences that are on the weekends, like in Tampa and in Dallas and Atlanta, where these grand old men of real estate that have been around for 30 and 40 years, they were in their 60s and 70s and some of them are in their 80s. And they were just these, like you pay like 500 bucks for a two day weekend. You stay at some Hampton Inn or something in Nowheresville outside of Atlanta and there was no sales pitch other than what they were talking about in that room. Mm. And it was just gold. They were just pouring out years of experience. And they had these like really crummy books that they'd give you. They're like these thick printed out books yeah. that didn't have page numbers and they had that terrible marketing. They would like hand out flyers to market for it. It was just like so old school, but they knew their business of renting and managing rental properties. And I got a master's degree <clears throat> in a couple of years. I got the effective result of a master's degree in running a rental business from those guys. And I still find myself knowing way more than people that have been doing it for way longer than me because I did all that homework. Let's talk about doing that homework, right? So I think people think, and I'm making a broad generalization, that buying mm -hmm. a rental property, I can just hire a property management company and then they'll mm -hmm. just run it for me and I'm done. It's completely passive. You adopted a very different approach, right? For mm -hmm. you, it was more hands-on. Do you have any thoughts on people who are actually trying to just outsource it versus somebody who is trying to learn the business themselves and potentially then outsource it? Any thoughts on that? Yeah. Good question, because I wrestled with this a lot myself. I debated on whether or not to manage my own properties or to hire a property manager. And I do not believe there is a right or wrong answer there. Uh, a lot of it depends on your skill set and what your goals are right. and kind of what your life circumstances are. But there are some pros and cons. If you really want to manage rental properties and you are, have the personality that is well suited to being a property manager, you can absolutely squeeze more return out of your properties by managing them yourself. However, if you don't have the aptitude mm -hmm. or the inclination or the personality to be a good property manager, which I don't, yeah. you will cost yourself far more trying to manage them yourself than if you hire a competent, good enough property manager. Let's talk about that. You said you could squeeze more juice and you didn't say the exact words. That's what I wrote down. I can't remember what you exactly said, but that's how I registered yep. it. You can squeeze more returns out of your properties and that's because you don't have to pay the management fee or is it something else? You're running it better Both. than somebody else. You're running it better. You're not paying a fee and it's your baby. So you care about it more and you're going to get uh, three day turnarounds on your renters and you're going to do all kinds of clever incentives to keep people to stay longer, et cetera. There's all these very clever property management tricks that you can pull off. I don't want to say tricks, just uh, techniques, you know, like yeah. processes that you can pull off when you manage a relatively small portfolio mm -hmm. of your own 
properties that even a really, really good property manager is not going to do at scale because they're managing yeah. a thousand units. They can't babysit a thousand units as carefully as you would babysit your portfolio of say 30 properties. Correct. But that's right. your full-time job and you're running it like a full-time job. I have zero interest in managing tenants and managing the ins and outs of optimizing that sort of business. So I'm willing to accept modest returns versus above average returns as a result. That's perfect. No, I think that makes sense because I think there's a cost to scale the business. That's what we're talking about now. If you're only doing one rental yeah. property, that model may work. But if you're trying to scale yeah. the business, there's a cost to scaling the business, which is you may have kind of shabby returns, but it doesn't mean shabby in a bad way, but shabby as in you may not make 10%, you make 8%. But right. now able to scale to 10 properties instead of one property you're managing yourself and that's all you could manage. Maybe two, maybe three. Right. That's what we're talking about is that delegation yeah. comes with some sort of a loss in quality sometimes. sometimes. And that delegation, hiring somebody like a property management company, you're delegating it so the quality may not be as good as you, but it's kind of there. And what you're after at that point is how good is kind of there is. Is it 90% or is it exactly. 40%? Right. Right. When you're delegating to somebody else, uh, you often want to get somebody who is 70% as good as you were and would care for your baby as 70% as well as you would if you Correct. were all in on that management. Correct. And sometimes Correct. when you delegate to people, you can get better than what you are. In my case, I think I do because I'm not good at management, but um, no one's going to care about your properties quite the way you are. Mm -hmm. But if you're trying to replace your income and you're trying to retire off of cash flows, you need way more than just a, a couple of properties. Oh, definitely, man. I think what they say, at least in the past, I don't know if that metric is still true, is a property, rental property is going to give you about two to $300 a yield per property if everything works out in your favor. Per, right? per month. Per in the month. best scenario. Yeah, yeah. In the best scenario. So what you're saying is if yeah. you do want to make ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000, you're looking at hundreds of properties in that model. So if you are now yeah. trying to figure this whole model out, how to make it work, if you're spending time in doing something, you're not doing something else. So the question exactly. really what you're asking is, what are you saying yes to and what should you be saying no to? Right? It's very important. I think mm -hmm. that's, as a consultant before, as part of the strategy consultant, we would say that, you know, just because you can do everything does not mean you should do everything, right? So no one's saying people are not smart, they're not capable. All of my listener base is probably super smart, hopefully more smarter than me. I don't know that, but chances are they sure. are. At least a good number of population of people there. But the problem that happens is, they're saying yes to everything, right? I mean, you're saying yes to everything and you're not able to do one thing good. The problem with that model is it's a squirrel syndrome where anything new is going to distract you from something else. All of us mm -hmm. face that challenge. I think the key is going to be, lesson from your story really is, you can be scattered when you're looking for it. But once you find something, at least put some focus on it, get better at it and hone in and then look at it. So now going back to your story today now, that's how you started, but that's not where you ended, or that's not what you're doing right now, at least not full time. So what's the right. path right now for you and why did you pivot from that? So we're definitely saying the same thing here. And I found that rental property was a way to buy myself my time back so that when mm -hmm. I was no longer gainfully employed in corporate America, I had enough income to spend time looking at what I was gonna do with my time. And right. so for a while, I flipped houses. For a while, I did what they call wholesaling and creative real estate structures, uh, you know, lease options and all these fancy things you can do. And I wasn't really, really good at any of it. 
there were aspects of it that I was good at. And I found the things that I liked doing the most was evaluating deals, saying go, no go, and then raising yeah. money. Right. And I found that that was the things I was best at. I'm good at strategy and business structure, but I'm not good at being an operator. Mm-hmm. So I thought I've been lending some money out of my self-directed IRA. One of the things I learned by going to these conferences and my kind of pool of capital that I had access to had been <laughs> compounding for the last few years. And I was really enjoying that part of business. It was the least lift for the greatest return and the most satisfaction that I personally got from the work. So I thought, well, let me take that and scale that up. So I started a little business as a proof of concept. Again, these small experiments to proof of concept something out. And so I raised some capital from some mutual friends of mine. And we all put our money, like we put 10 or $20,000 each into LLC, shares of an LLC. We raised 250 grand total. And we started a little small scale lending business. We ran that for two years and that money got the net result of 15 to 18% return. And, and so the investors got their money back and I confirmed my assessment that that's the business that I want to be in. So I took that model and then I went the more formal structure, which is creating a fund. Mm-hmm. And so now we have a fund that does short-term loans to real estate investors of varying types. And now I'm in the capital raise mode for the fund that uh, for accredited investors to get a good return while it's 100% passive. And so it's me and one other business partner, and we are the primary founders and general partners of that company. But then we have a staff that I've created and learned the processes around to do proper deal vetting and, and underwriting. Mm-hmm. And then we have all these structures to make sure the money is being managed uh, well. And that's what I spend my time doing now is just evaluating deals, saying yes or no, if it's a good deal or not, and managing capital. That's awesome. So let's go a little bit deeper on lending itself, right? So lending in real estate in an environment right now, for somebody who doesn't Mm -hmm. understand it, and they're only Mm -hmm. listening to the media, which we all know is biased. When you're doing that, how do you convince people that real estate is still a good investment right now, and lending is not risking their money? First of all, Mm -hmm. are you getting asked this question? If you are, how are you responding to that? Yeah, of course, it's a reasonable question to think, you know, okay, as an an investor, I'm going to put money into a fund. Like, what are you doing behind the scenes to make sure that the capital is getting the return that you're promising and also is a safe investment for me? So there's a couple of different kind of classes of investors. Some people Mm -hmm. just, they are fundamentally interested in real estate. They want some alternative to the stock market and real estate is not a hard sell. There are other people who are really fairly new at this idea of alternative investments. And so the questions that they ask are, why is real estate a thing that people get into? Why is that better or different or or have advantages over the stock market? Yeah. I am not religious about asset classes. I am just rational about the pros and cons of asset classes, right? So the stock market I still invest in has some merit. So does real estate. One thing about real estate that I like is a physical real asset that is uh, very rarely or unlikely to go to zero. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you buy a share of a stock, you have no actual collateral behind that. So real right. estate collateralizes itself. That's one mm-hmm. thing. Also, real estate can be a native or natural cash flow type investment because mm-hmm. it's something that we all get our heads around that there is a piece of land that has an improvement on it that can be leased out to somebody for a rent. That is not a very difficult business model for people to get their heads around because they've leased a place themselves. You know, or like, right. you know they, we, right. we've all had to live someplace. So it's very, very native for people to understand this versus the stock market. If you're investing in stocks, you really should be 
very carefully investigating what the business models that you're investing in are. Yeah. And most people, including myself, are not pros at evaluating the actual P&L and the price to earnings ratio and truly understanding the dynamics of a business. But mm-hmm. real estate is so simple. So that's the argument that I would say that real estate is just a much simpler asset class. Now, it can be complicated, sure, but the fundamental theory, the thesis behind real estate is that it's a useful piece of real estate, of property that we all understand the values of, and it tends to maintain its value compared to inflation over time. So it's kind of hedges against inflation, yeah. which is why I think it's a good compelling op- option right now. I completely agree with all you're saying, right? So I think that all makes sense when you're comparing the two asset classes, but let's stay within the real estate realm itself where mm-hmm. the capital markets are in turmoil. Nobody knows what's going to happen in the mm-hmm. interest rates. The inflation is up to a zoo, at least the unofficial mm-hmm. one. The official one is still at least single digits. But really, the shadow stats, when you look at we're looking at 15 17% interest uh, CPI. So when you start mm-hmm. thinking about that, the fear, because also not everyone is feeling rich right now because of the stock market, you know, sure. how the sentiment is, if there's money in the stock market, people are feeling rich. If it's not in the stock market, sure. people are feeling poor. So when you're looking at that and there's a lot of fear that's in the market where are the real estate prices going to go down? Is the market going to crash? Are we in a recession or will we be in recession? And at that time when you're launching the fund and kind of convincing Mm -hmm. people that it's a good opportunity, Mm -hmm. what are you seeing that other people who are not initiated into looking at things the way you're looking are not seeing? Yeah. Sure. So the design and structure of the One Call Capital Fund is specifically meant to thrive in the current environment. Mm-hmm. So we do very short-term loans that mm-hmm. are six months or less. So mm-hmm. we're not doing a lot of evaluation or hedging or thinking ahead about what the future value of some piece of property is. We're taking yeah. today's values and we're lending no more than 50% loan to values. So we're super conservative mm-hmm. with our ratios. Yeah. And we're oftentimes lending to somebody who already has an established contractual exit built into their strategy. They just need cash. So there is a shortage of available lending right now for land deals, for construction (coughs) loans, for bridge loans. A lot of times what we're doing is we're lending to somebody who already has a C LOI or C purchase and sell agreement. So they can do the A to B transaction. And then within six months, they have an executed strategy that allows them out with profit for the B to C transaction. So what we're doing is we're just providing liquidity to somebody who has access to a really cool deal, but they're just short on cash. And they've probably done 10, 20, 30 of these, and they funded half of them with their own cash, but they've run out of access to the liquidity. And so we just step in as their solution to fund the deal. And we obviously need to raise capital to help fund that. So what I liked in your sort of a strategy is that in the past, but the hard money lending concept, which is you're also a hard money lender in one regard, because it's off of the traditional market. So it's private money lending. They were given to flippers, which essentially was I bought the property for 100K. I'm going to put another two, three, 400K into it. I'm making Mm -hmm. these numbers up. I'm selling it for a million dollars. There's a huge gap, but I'm waiting. In that scenario, I'm expecting the market to continue to go up, right? Where even though I put in 500K, including my cost price, by the time I'm ready to sell, the market has already gone up and I'm going to catch up to that and I'm going to make a big margin there. But the model that you are using, which I like really, is more about that you already have an exit plan. You already know the final Mm -hmm. price at the exit and it's already there. 
Right. So your risk now, can that person default? They can. So that's where the third party contracts sure. you have to figure out and evaluate to make sure that third party, the buyer, is actually worthy enough to make sure that to take a risk on. That's where probably your due diligence mm-hmm. comes in. But if they are, yep. and let's say everything checks out, you already have an exit. So your probability of losing the capital goes down, right? First thing is the preservation of capital for any fund. So that goes right. down. The second yep. is you already have some projected return based on a very, very educated data. It's not a guess of mm-hmm. what the market is going to do six months from today, three months from today. 12 months from today. We're not doing that. You're not bearing the interest rate fluctuations and everything else. And most of these contracts, tell me, Paul, if I'm wrong, most of these contracts have some hard money put in already. So if the buyer defaults on it, they earn us money. So they lose a lot of money in the game. So they're not incentivized to default. That's not the goal for them to get into this transaction that let's figure out what's going to happen three months or six months from today, we can always cancel the contract, Mm -hmm. right? Something drastic has to happen. And we're not talking about emotional buyers. We're talking about people who are buying this as a profession, I'm assuming. Is that last statement true? As an investment, yeah. As an investment, correct? When you start looking at that, the risk kind of shifts downward. Mm -hmm. The reason I wanted to explain that is there's multiple ways to skin the cat, right? So if you ask one person, private lending is risky, they are right. If you ask someone like you, is private lender risky? The answer is not really. It could be, but not really yeah, if you do on, it the right way. On the details for sure. Yeah. <laughs> right? So, so yeah. I like that. And thanks yeah. for sharing that. What's the resistance you're facing from your investors? Like, what is the concern they're having that you're hearing from? If you reflect on your last 10, 15 conversations with mm-hmm. the investors, what's the pushback? The pushback that I get is that they haven't done it before. So they just haven't seen mm-hmm. the mechanics. And so, unlike when you buy something in the stock market, you put $50,000 into a transaction and the value of your Tesla stock or whatever it is goes up and down. You still log into your portal with Charles Schwab or wherever you're investing and you still see the value of that thing. Even though it's you don't actually own it, you can say, you know what? I don't like it. I want out. I can sell. And even if it's for a loss, I can control that it's back. When you're investing in a fund, that's not typically the way it works. So you certainly see that you have capital deployed, but you don't have the ability to do a fire sale and get your $40,000 back and lose 10,000 because you're nervous about what's happening in the markets. This is similar to syndications. It's like hopping onto a plane and you have a destination to get to. And ours is only a one-year commitment. Syndications are often a five or seven-year commitment. But even so, that concept is similar. You put your investment into a vehicle and it's kind of like a CD. You don't really have access to it until it matures. Same with us. And so that's the thing that I find (laughs) investors who haven't done this before have a hard time getting their head around because they're like, I'm used to, I'm trained by the stock market, by Wall Street, and that I can just liquidate that asset very quickly. And to that point, right, I think I raise capital as well. And I always find that that conversation that, well, it's not liquid. And I always tell people is that, when have you taken the money from stock market when it's going up? Never, right? right? Most people, when they need the capital, the market is down. So that's fun. The second is, when have you thought that I shouldn't have sold? Mostly when always <laughs> when the market's down, right? So it's really yeah. when we start looking at this liquidity concept, right? I think there's definitely a emotional component to it that I have things in my control. There is. But the second thing more is we've been brainwashed to believe control is good. Control is good for yeah. individuals who have time and the 
savviness to understand the market, predict the market, have right. a strong thesis going in, and they're playing not mm-hmm. just emotions, they're looking at numbers, and then they combine emotions on top of it, and now you become, make a decision what's the right for you. Most people are saying that Paul sold Tesla, I think I should sell Tesla. Paul's a smart guy, right? Or Paul's not selling it, I should keep it too. Paul was drunk one day and he told me to buy Tesla, I should buy Tesla, right? That's how the <laughs> transactions are happening, right? Well, that's what they call irrational exuberance. We just see happening in the market and there's all these signals that people are buying, so I better buy too, or I'm seeing right. the signals that everybody's selling and I should sell too. Right. And that is not the way you should be approaching investing really in anything no. is riding the emotional waves up, up and down. Correct. That's actually where people like yourselves and myself, their funds come into play, right? Because now, even though the market is going down, we're not making an emotional decision of selling it because we can't. We're fiduciary responsible mm-hmm. for that money to make sure that it serves sure. its purpose to the investors mm-hmm. and there's a thesis that we go in with and we always have multiple exits. Mm-hmm. It's right. just that when you start doing that, sometimes that lack of control works most of the time, actually not sometimes works in our favor, investors' favor. It does, even with single family, the same concept single family, you can't just decide to sell your rental house tomorrow and it'd be liquidated tomorrow. It takes a while, right? And so a lot of times, by the time you decide to make the call, things have settled out and you're like, oh, I should have just kept it all along. I'm glad I did. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, definitely, man. Well, Paul, on and on, you and I can go on and on on this thing, but I think you and I speak the same language, which is great. But we want to respect for your time and our listeners' time as well. So we're coming to the end of the show. We always end the show with two questions. First question is going to be, you had an exciting career several pivots along the way. And I'm glad you found mm-hmm. what you're really passionate about, which is combining your skill with helping people in getting their capital deployed and getting more juice mm-hmm. out of their capital. If you were to go back as your 20-year-old self, what's one insight you'd share with that person to kind of make their migration in life more intentional? Yes. It's always invest in yourself and create equity. You are your most valuable asset. So you need to invest in yourself, which I thought that was developing skills. So when Mm -hmm. I went through the corporate world, I was thinking about what's the skill that I could acquire, which was fine because I still stack those skills even today, but I stopped. That's as far as I went. I didn't also go and look for things that I can own very much. I did a little bit of stock investing. I did a little bit of stuff in my IRA, that kind of thing. I didn't go all in on figure out a business that you can run and you're the owner of, or Mm -hmm. figure out somebody to partner with that knows the business that they need some help and you can own part of it. That kind of concept never occurred to me until I was in my mid to late thirties. I was 37 when I bought my first rental property and my net worth since doing that has uh, doubled every two years. Mm. And it took a long time for me to develop a very small amount of net worth of, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars by the time I was 37. And because that was me just, and this is not kind of my personal residence. This is just, you know, like my stock portfolio. And I was just putting whatever I put in my IRA in my 401k away. And then I wasn't doing anything else to compound and add more equity to my life. Yeah. No, I agree, man. I think that's a great insight, especially no time is bad time to start investing, but the sooner you do it, the better it is. Because the power of compounding is amazing. We all should take advantage of that. And read that book, Richest Man in the Babylon. You should do that. Richest uh, Man in Babylon, yeah. And if you can't read it, just do an audiobook. You'll get some perspectives, yep. which are going to be great. Paul, last sure. question, my friend. Where do you believe, as you're encountering a lot of investors and having conversations with them, 
and of course mm-hmm. in and around your your own ecosystem where do you feel like humanity mm-hmm. as a whole should migrate towards in the next decade the next decade so the internet compounded with social media has had such a profound impact on society in largely a negative way that I mean, I'm always cautiously optimistic that we'll net get better as a species. Mm-hmm. Because if you look back at our lives as we've evolved as a species, the net average balance of each individual human's experience is better with every yeah. additional decade by quite a bit. But I'm also extremely nervous about the splintering effect that mm-hmm. as a species, we are not adapting fast enough to the technological revolution that's happening around us. Yeah. And I'm very hopeful and about the potential of AI, but I also know there's a lot of unintended consequences that are going to be caused from it, compounded with the unintended consequences of what we're already doing that I'm not sure we truly understand. Yeah. <laughs> so I think it is incumbent on each one of us to create our own personal economies. And I think that maybe not in 10 years, but certainly in our lifetimes, many of the jobs that we are accustomed to doing are going to be drastically changed by the technological revolution that we're in the middle of. And I think we'll still have jobs, but what those jobs are are going to change a lot. And so it's very much time for each one of us to get ready to adapt to the reality that you know, it used to be our farm labor, our physical strength is what made us, what was what our economy has been. And since then, it was based off of our intelligence, our data. Mm-hmm. Well, now the case anymore because the AI machines that we're building are going to be so much smarter, so much faster at the things that we were the best at. And so now we're going to have to figure out that our economy is going to be based on human connection. Yeah. And human connection is thing that is truly only a human can do. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. And social media is not helping in building human connection. We're getting farther and farther away from that. This is no, right? It's all pros and cons. Mm-hmm. The balance right now, I'm afraid, is leaning towards separating people versus bringing people together. Yeah. Correct. Correct. Well, Paul, thanks a lot again for sharing the insights, sharing your life's journey, sharing your life works with us. I appreciate that. And thank you again for coming on the show. If somebody wants to reach out to you and learn more about what you do, learn more about your fund, where can they find you? Yeah, the best place to find me is on my website, pauldavidthompson.com. That's spelled the way you would expect the common spellings of those names. I think you probably dropped those in the show notes. Mm-hmm. And from there, you can find the cap- you can find our capital fund or any kind of other information that we freely share on my website, pauldavidthompson.com. Awesome. Well, we'll make sure that link is included below in the show notes. But thank you again, Paul. Have a great day, buddy. And I'm sure there's a start to a new relationship here. Thank you. If you got value from this episode, you might consider sharing this content with a friend. But most importantly, be sure to take action on what you've learned. One way you can take the next step is to connect directly with Socket on an investor call. That link is waiting for you in the show notes below. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Please consult your own advisors when making any investment decisions. Keep listening. We'll see you on the next episode.